before we get into the festivities, I wanted to warn you that this episode gets into some details that might be triggering. I mean, we're talking about a rich and powerful boomer dude. I can't imagine you're completely bowled over to hear that. Regardless, be aware that this episode mentions topics like domestic violence, murder, sexual assault, and pedophilia. I'm not going to get graphic, but keep it in mind. Welcome to the Playboy Mansion. Beg the question, what has gone wrong with young Hollywood? Honest to God, what is the problem? Hello and welcome to season five of Lay Do You Remember This, where we look back on all the stories from Hollywood's best worst decade the early 2000s, a time in history when America found out that with a trust fund, a sex tape, and a dream, you too could become a star. As always, I'm your host, Dara Lane. Today we'll continue part one, so part two of part one, of our series on the girls next door and the history of Playboy. Last week, we left off at the beginning of the 1970s when Hef bought the Playboy Mansion West for $1 million. The 12-bedroom and 21-bathroom Tudor-style mansion was discovered by Hef's girlfriend, Barbie Benton. What happened that year? I bought a little house, a little house called Playboy Mansion West. I was actually not looking for a house when I found that one. But when I saw it, I knew it was the perfect house for him. I asked him to fly to L.A. and take a look at it. And when he saw it, he said it was too small. Wow. Hef renovated the property to include a guest house, a game house, movie theater, a gym, commercial kitchen, and offices. Hef was also the only private citizen in L.A. to finagle himself a zoo license, so his five-acre yard was home to exotic birds and three types of monkeys, including Holly's beloved monkey, Coco. Luckily, I have another love in my life, and her name is Coco. She is a spider monkey, and she's sad because her brother died. Coco, come visit me, baby! some grapes and then you'll come visit me. I kind of think of myself as Coco's mom. She's my baby girl. Oh, Coco! Don't eat and run. Coco is somebody who brings a lot of joy to a lot of people and I just want her to have a lot of human interaction so she never feels alone. My aunt gave her more insight onto behaviors, what it means when Coco's doing this or that. Oh, hello baby girl. She's just terribly overweight. One thing that she did tell Holly is when Coco is really in love and thinks of her as one of her own, she'll uh, come over and lift her neck up and put her neck on Holly's neck. And that just means that she has 100% trust in the other person. Would you like to have your hair brushed? I like to be with Coco and to be with animals because it's just nice to totally be in the moment and care about somebody else. I just know when I'm out there caring for Coco that it makes a difference. And with Hef, it's just like, you know, he has other girlfriends. Look at his tail. But with Coco, she likes it that I'm interested in her best interest and everything, and guys aren't that way. We're going to put you in a centerfold. <laughs> a lot 
to unpack there. But let's keep the tour moving and let Hef, Holly, and the MTV Cribs crew show you around the rest of the backyard. The fact that we are in the middle of Los Angeles, but that you feel as if you're in another world, is something that had great appeal for me. Everything you see in the backyard, we added. We added the hills, the streams, the pool, the waterfall, and the, the, fun, and, the fun and games. I couldn't imagine doing a typical Hollywood pool here. And that's why I made it a very natural kind of swimming pool that actually looks like a pond. And I guess that's inspired a lot, a lot of other properties uh, in Southern California. A Sunday's fun on the Sunday. I'll be hanging out by the pool with friends, playing a little backgammon. The girls will be playing volleyball. Other than the bedroom, my favorite part of the property. And this, of course, is the infamous grotto, as they say if the rocks could talk. There's actually a, a, a tanning area on top of the uh, cave as well. And it is set up in a way so that the, the, the cave and the grotto are actually set in the pool so that this is the natural swimming pool itself. If you go over the stairs, it's jacuzzi bath. It's very popular. I think it has to do with everybody's emphasis on health these days. <laughs> What happens in the grotto stays in the grotto. <laughs> we don't take names. <laughs> the grotto was known as the preferred venue at the Playboy Mansion to stage a good old-fashioned orgy. One of the mansion butlers once said, Everyone called the jacuzzi the herpes pool. I was so naive, I didn't know what herpes was, but it sounded awful. I was afraid that while I was putting out the towels and the bathrobes, I'd fall in and get herpes. Playboy orgies became canon in the 1970s, and from then on, there was a general expectation that a trip to the mansion meant you'd end up stripped down, crowd surfing atop a sea of naked party people like you were starring in American Pie's eighth straight-to-video sequel. Here's a clip of Kendra on The Rosie Show talking about when Hef first asked her to move into the Playboy Mansion. My mom and grandma are very conservative. They're like, do you know what happens up there? Like, they have <clears throat> orgies. Yeah. And I'm like, really? Ugh. I wasn't really, you know, of yeah. course I wasn't you were 18. really happy about that. But I, I did it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and that's what I like you. Just say it. I did it. By the 90s, everything had calmed down a bit, but the 70s and 80s were definitely the closest it ever was to being a never-ending orgy party. Even when there wasn't a full-blown rager going on, there were always people coming and going, looking to indulge in the mansion's many offerings. There was an open-door policy for Playmates and for Hef's Gang List, a group of people who were allowed to get past security any time, day or night. The list included Hef's buddies from his Chicago days, as well as a group of famous guys like Warren Beatty and Jack Nicholson, who lived down the street and would stop by for a snack from the 24-hour kitchen or a rendezvous with a playmate. Now, despite the fact that by the early 70s, the Playboy empire had 23 clubs, casinos, and hotels, the Hollywood elite had little respect for him. They saw Hef as an interloper, a star fucker, not really one of them. I'm sure it also didn't help that he was a middle-aged man who only wore silk pajamas and drank 25 Pepsis a day. You play the game to the host's face as your mid-stroll on your way to the orgy in the grotto, but I don't see a world where the second they're on the other side of the mansion gates, Jack doesn't say to Beatty, what 
is it with him in that captain's hat? And then they just talk absolute shit the whole way home. Hef didn't need to care, but he was obsessed with celebrities and what they thought of him. So one way that Hef could potentially prove his legitimacy in Hollywood was if he became a star maker. He'd failed at that thus far, despite having always promoted the idea that Playboy magazine was the first step to fame. As magazine sales started to decline in 1974, it was especially important to earn back some relevancy. Finally, a blonde entered the Playboy universe who could turn it all around. Hugh Hefner invites you to Playboy's Rubber Disco and Pajama Party. Making an appearance on the show was the 19-year-old August Playmate of the Month, Dorothy Stratton. She made a big impression on audiences, and after that, the sweet, naive blonde from Vancouver started getting attention and began booking movie roles. Hef expected her to be his next Marilyn Monroe, a woman that would catapult the magazine back to its former glory of the 50s and 60s. The problem was, Hef wasn't the only one banking on her to bring him some undeserved success. Dorothy came from Canada to Hollywood by way of a man named Paul Schneider, who people referred to as the Jewish pimp. Paul was an abusive hustler who had discovered 17-year-old Dorothy in Vancouver at the Dairy Queen where she worked. Just like Hef, Paul instantly knew that this beautiful high school student could be his meal ticket, so he courted her and then coerced her into taking nude photos to send to Playboy. Just as he suspected, they loved her pictures, and when the magazine flew her out to LA to shoot, Paul came too. Dorothy was quickly invited into the Playboy fold, attending all the parties and events at the mansion. But Hef always had a strict no-boyfriends-allowed policy, and Paul was left off the invite list. Even if that wasn't the rule, everyone at Playboy hated Paul because he was weirdly obsessed with the brand and was clearly very controlling of Dorothy, and Hef was afraid he'd be the one to derail her career. Paul could feel himself getting phased out, so in response, he pushed Dorothy into marrying him, which she agreed to because she felt she owed him that since he was the one that discovered her. Soon after the marriage, Dorothy was named Playmate of the Year and then left Paul in LA to go star in a movie called They All Laughed by Peter Bogdanovich, a respected director whom she'd met at the Roller Disco Dance Party TV special. Peter was a friend of Hef's and someone who was known to hang out at the mansion, despite the fact that his ex-girlfriend, actress Sybil Shepard, had recently sued Playboy for publishing a nude picture of her that they pulled from a scene in Peter's movie, The Last Picture Show. Dorothy and Peter fell in love on set, so she wrote Paul a letter asking him to let her go. Obviously, he didn't take the letter well. He was jealous and angry, but most of all worried that he wouldn't have anyone to pay his way anymore. When Dorothy got back, he tried to reconcile several times, but once he realized it was really over, he agreed to a divorce and asked her to come to his home to discuss financial arrangements. It was there on August 14, 1980, that Paul brutally murdered 20-year-old Dorothy and then shot himself. This was just the beginning of a major spiral for Playboy. When Hef found out about Dorothy, he called Peter to break the news. Peter was bereft over her death, and as time went on, he decided that it was Hef and the Playboy brand that were the true root cause of her death. 
He published a book in 1984 called Killing of the Unicorn, which was part love letter to Dorothy and part manifesto, railing against Hef, Playboy, and everything they represent. He wrote that in his time at the mansion, he quote, came to realize that the men of Playboy pursued women only for sex and rarely even had conversations with them. His overall point of the book being that Hef created and espoused a culture at the mansion and in his magazines that trivialized women and taught men that they were there for their pleasure and possession. No one ascribed to that idea more than the man who killed Dorothy. Peter also alleged that after she died, a friend of Dorothy's told him that the playmate had once confided that Hef had assaulted her in a hot tub when she first started coming to the mansion. This sparked a huge feud between them that all played out in the press. To Hef, there was no bigger blow than one to his carefully crafted persona as the ultimate playboy. Playboys don't have to take it because the women are lining up to offer it. In an interview with Rolling Stone, Hef was asked point blank if he was ever naked in the jacuzzi with Dorothy, to which he replies, That's true. It was in the early morning, and I'll tell you very frankly, I don't remember a whole lot about it. It's not unusual. It would not be the kind of thing that one would think about, except for what happened later. As the feud went back and forth, Hef suffered a minor stroke in 1985 and declared that it was the stress of Peter's book that brought it on. Nothing to do with the 25 Pepsis or the pipe he sucked on all day and night. His daughter Christy, who had taken over the Playboy empire in 1982, begged him to drop it but instead, he called a press conference that would escalate things even further. He announced to the crowd of reporters that he had it on good authority that soon after Dorothy's death, Peter seduced her then 13-year-old sister as a, quote, pathological replacement. Then, if there was any question as to whether Hef was a messy bitch who loved drama, he trotted out on stage the estranged husband of Dorothy's mother, Burl Elridge. Burl told the room full of reporters that Peter paid for plastic surgery to reconstruct the girl's jaw so she would look more like Dorothy. After the press conference, Dorothy's mother and sister were understandably distraught and sued Hef for slander. They retained Gloria Allred as their counsel, who made a statement of her own saying, quote, Even newspapers don't give the names of rape victims. If he was just trying to get back at Bogdanovich, it wouldn't justify this. Hef never backed down from his allegations, despite the pushback that maybe a teenager and her mother didn't need to be further traumatized after the tragic murder of their loved one. As reported by Hillary Johnson in the article for Rolling Stone, at another press conference, a journalist tried to bring the focus back to the underage girl that was being hurt in Hef's efforts to clear his name. The truth will finally be known, was his reply. Johnson goes on to write that, quote, Privately, he was more emotionless, measured in his language. Once, his voice booming, he said, The victim in this story is not some 16-year-old girl. The victim turns out to be the publisher of Playboy magazine. A few months into an investigation and after several witness depositions, the lawsuit against Hef was suddenly and quietly dropped. When questioned by the press, the usually verbose Gloria Allred gave an uncharacteristically vague statement saying, Everything is governed by the attorney-client privilege. I cannot comment on why the decision was made. Hef's thoughts on the matter was that Gloria, quote, was in for a big shock because she's a staunch feminist. 
She had been appearing on television with Bogdanovich, thinking she had a woman's rights guy on her hands. And what she had was something else again. And unfortunately, Hef must have been right about something. Because a few years later in 1988, a 49-year-old Peter Bogdanovich married Dorothy's 20-year-old sister. Hef knew that whatever Peter had done to her was wrong. But protecting the girl from that wrongdoing and holding Peter accountable was never his reason for exposing it. He said to Rolling Stone, quote, I'm not interested in crucifying Bogdanovich. I'm not interested in sending a guy to prison. I have no problem accepting the fact that it came from a combination of his guilt and craziness in combination with being lied to and misled by other people. I don't have any problem with that, but I'll be damned if I'm going to pretend that the last year and a half didn't exist. After the suit was dropped, they decided to quietly put an end to the feud. Both sides did consider, though, making another public show of their truce on the fifth anniversary of Dorothy's murder. Hef joked, Maybe we could hold a joint press conference at Dorothy's grave site. The 80s continued to put Playboy through the ringer. There was the HIV crisis, which wasn't ideal PR for a magazine that built its brand on casual sex. And then when conservative Ronald Reagan became president, a war on pornography and a push for America to return to Christian family values caught steam amongst the right. In 1985, a research report commissioned by President Reagan was published by Judith Reisman, which compiled all the humorous or positive references to incest and pedophilia published in Playboy. And listen, I know how commissioned by President Reagan sounds. And Judith had some bad takes on any kind of sex that was more creative than two heteros lying on top of each other like a stack of plywood at Home Depot but she also had some pretty solid proof of her accusations, including some awful nude photos of a 10-year-old Brooke Shields in a Playboy coffee table book titled Sugar and Spice. Another bit of literature that didn't do half any favors was published that year as well. A book by Sunday Times reporter Russell Miller titled Bunny, The Real Story of Playboy. The first line of the introduction reads, Hugh Hefner will not like this book because it largely reflects how other people see him rather than how he sees himself. On top of all that, magazine sales were cut in half and their biggest asset, their casino in London, was shut down after their gambling license was revoked. The Playboy Casino in Atlantic City came tumbling after. People had largely decided that Hef and the Playboy brand and philosophy were passé. It had been a while since Hef had tried to change his image, but like Madonna, whose nude pictures he published without her consent, Hef also knew that sometimes a girl has got to pivot and go on a reinvention tour. So in 1989, 63-year-old Hugh Hefner did the unthinkable. He got married. To a 26-year-old playmate, which was very thinkable. After getting engaged, he named Kimberly Conrad, soon to be Hefner, the Playmate of the Year and his Playmate of Eternity. After they got married, they had two sons, Cooper and Marston, and suddenly Hef was a family man again. The Playboy Mansion has become a home. Not for a Playboy and his playmates, 
but for a husband and his family. with Kimberly in the marriage, in having at long last more traditional family and children. I think to some extent I've come back home again. I've come full circle back to values very similar to my own parents. But I don't think that I could have gotten there without having taken that other trip. Because that other trip was not only a quite remarkable adventure, it also I think was necessary to really find myself and make some sense of it all. That was a clip from the ending of the propaganda film slash Hugh Hefner documentary, Once Upon a Time. There are many, many documentaries about Hef with Hef's participation, but this one in particular was produced by Mark Frost, who created Twin Peaks with David Lynch. Hmm. So now that Hef was a daddy again, he tried to get healthy so he might avoid another stroke. He switched from regular Pepsi to caffeine-free diet and swapped out the tobacco from his signature pipe with liquid soap so he could blow little bubbles with it, or so I choose to imagine. Parties got smaller and less frequent, which pissed off the sycophants who were looking to get their rocks off. When playmates sat by the pool, they now kept their bathing suit tops on. People perceived that Kimberly was a 26-year-old blonde tyrant who ran a ship as tight as her ass. However, when Kimberly eventually left Hef, she didn't see herself as the one in control. In a Washington Post article from 1999, she said, He was extremely possessive and protective. Protective I love, a little possessive I like, and very controlling. He was very controlling. She draws a breath, as if unsure if she should continue. Not controlling in a bad way, it was just a little bit much. Kimberly moved out with the boys to the house next door, and for the first time in decades, Hef was all alone in his big, round bed. The late 80s and 90s weren't a total wash, though. Not only did Playboy find its star, it found three. Pamela Anderson, Anna Nicole Smith, and Jenny McCarthy. Noted anti-vaxxer and judge of the mass singer with the gall to guess with a straight face that maybe former President Obama is the person inside that sequin banana costume. Pamela was first put on the cover in 1989 and ended up on the sitcom Home Improvement and then Baywatch. Pamela always had a close relationship with Hef and held the title for the most appearances on Playboy's cover. So Hugh Hefner was a little bit of a mentor to you. Yes. Sort of took you under his wing a bit. I saw he was really extra um, protective of me. Playing. And spent a lot of time with me to be very careful, but it obviously didn't uh, improve my choices in men. Yes, I mean, you must have experienced the casting couch syndrome. You must have had people saying, look, if you do this, you can get this. Oh yeah, I've been offered a lot of money, even for a jacuzzi. You kidding? <laughs> but I said, I would call Hef and go, why do they offer me $10,000 to go to have a jacuzzi with them? And he said, come home right now. And then the girls would tell me, stop calling Hef, you're going to give him a stroke. <laughs> <laughs> because, because I was like a, like a tattletale or something, but I was, just couldn't believe it. In April 1992, Vicki Smith appeared on the cover of Playboy and then became Playmate of the Month in May. That's when Paul Marciano, the founder of Guess, saw her picture. 
Well, maybe you don't recognize the name, but I'm sure you recognize that uh, sensuous look that's been seen on pages of hundreds of thousands of uh, magazines as part of the latest Guess Ad campaign. Looks something like this. Uh, they've referred to her as the girl next door, so how come none of my neighbors ever look like her? Here she is, Anna Nicole Smith. This is Kathy Lee. Nice to meet you. Have a seat right here, Anna. Right. What a year you've had. Oh, yeah. Looks like a guest shirt to me. <laughs> yeah, jeans and all. So, you mean, uh, was it uh, Mr. Marciano who called you after he saw the Playboy uh, cover? He called Marilyn Grabowski, which is a personal friend of mine mm -hmm. that I met at Playboy. And um, she called me and explained to me who Paul was. Yeah and what guess was, uh -huh. and then I caught him, and that's how it started. And that's how the whole well, thing Well, they made started. a nice, a real change, though, from the, from the Claudia Schiffer look, which was the original guest model, uh, I guess, maybe not the original, but the last one, to you. Do you feel there are a lot more women in the world that look like you than look like Claudia? Definitely, I think um, a lot of women can relate to my size. I also read that you were, really never blossomed, as they say, until right. after the junior prom. No, until after I had my son. Then I went way out. <laughs> Big difference from the junior prom. That's what it says in the Playboy article, right? They have so many different stories. Oh, no one's your, getting you know, anything right. I'm on TV now, I'm going to tell y'all. Tell Let's us the hear truth. it, babe. Because yeah. I want to know when you blossom, so yeah. there's hope for all of us. <laughs> okay, I was straight as a board yeah, when thing. I was growing up. I was flat-chested. Oh. Nothing compared to this. Um, there isn't much compared to that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't hear If I say it, it's okay. If yeah. you say it, you could get a lawsuit. That's right. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Um, and then when I got married at 17, I had my son. Well, I got pregnant first. And I went shown and got up to 211 pounds, oh. and I was 125 pounds. Oh, my gosh. So it was like, boom, boom. <laughs> yeah, but how did you lose it in all the right places and keep the good stuff? <laughs> I haven't figured that one out. Do, are you on an exercise regime? Do you work out? Tell mm. us, please, Anna. We're... I don't work out. Just lay around the house all day, Anna? <laughs> Eating bonbons. Eating bonbons, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I There's going to be some justice in this story one of these days. <laughs> As you can see in that Regis and Kathy Lee clip from 1992, from the beginning, weight was apparently a big topic surrounding Vicky, who now went by Anna Nicole. In fact, she almost didn't get chosen to be in Playboy because of her size. In 2007, after her death, Playboy featured some of her old pictures as well as a short oral history about her time at the magazine. They open with this anecdote from Arnie Freytag, a senior photographer who's featured on The Girls Next Door in several episodes. I rejected her Playboy test. She had a great face, but she was overweight. I said she should lose a few pounds and maybe we'd test her again. But Marilyn Grabowski, the Playboy West photo editor, convinced him to choose her. Now, what is supposed to be a touching memorial article goes on and on about how overweight she was and how difficult it made their job of getting a sexy picture out of her. She turned out to be an instant hit with readers when her photos came out, and the Playboy article eulogized that she brought sexy back to the full-figured woman. She was 5'11 and 160 pounds. On her fact sheet featured alongside her centerfold, they lied and said she was 140. I guess they thought that was a cute anecdote. 
There's hardly a mention of her personality or her charm, just a lot of patting each other on the back for making the bold move to feature a gorgeous thin blonde who was just a little less thin than every other woman they featured. These successes didn't do much to make Playboy relevant again, though. Instead, it would take three other girls to successfully bring Hef into the 21st century. In 1999, when Hef and Kim separated, he was dreading re-emerging onto the dating scene as a 73-year-old after a friend told him that at nightclubs, the women look right through you. But the few remaining hangers-on convinced him not to give up on love with 20-year-olds, what he realized was that 10 years later, the next generation had an interest in the Playboy brand in the same way that Gen Z now has an interest in the early 2000s. With, with the change in my domestic uh, status, uh, uh, it is party time once again, and uh, the mansion is again a, a magnet for uh, uh, celebrities, young and old. Uh, it is fascinating for me, having been off the scene for the better part of 10 years, to discover how many people, including young people, men and women, boys and girls, were waiting for me to come out and play. And uh, that's very satisfying. And obviously interconnected in some way to the fact that uh, Playboy and everything that we're doing is so hot again. I mean, the company is, is uh, going like never before. And I think that's connected in some curious way to the fact that I'm out and about again. This is a good time to be alive. I'm looking forward to the new millennium with great satisfaction. Hef started going out to clubs every week where he met Brandy Roderick. You might remember Brandy from her time on The Apprentice in 2009 and this infamous and disgusting clip involving her, Brett Michaels, and Donald Trump. Nobody came in. Let me say this. Sure. Brandy came in here, she got down on her knees and said, I passionately want to do this. I, at this point, am the team chooser, not the team leader Excuse yet. Excuse me, you dropped to your knees. Yes. And begged to do this. And I said, I'm looking around the room, and we had even Latoya, who sitting beside me, thought maybe Brandy was right. must be a pretty picture you dropped in. John and Dennis thought I should be. Omarosa said me. Some other people <laughs> said you. And in the end of it, I said... Brandy quickly moved into the mansion as Hef's girlfriend. Then, Hef met Sandy and Mandy Bentley. Here's the three of them on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart in 1999. I met them originally at a, at a dance club called the Garden of Eden. <laughs> I'm sure it was. Appropriately enough. <laughs> yeah. And, um... We disco, you know, we, we, uh, we disco dance, so, um, we're able to... <laughs> they, I, I Those headaches are coming back. But I cannot tell them apart. I mean, I cannot, uh, I would, can I make, may I suggest this? Uh-huh. Uh, uh, monogrammed hats. <laughs> I can't idea. tell the difference even if we were. No. That's what I'm saying, although my guess, and this is honestly only a guess, who gives who a shit? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> really? You got it. At this point. Yeah. I'm not saying, I'm just saying. <laughs> Maybe he never remembered their names, but the first night they met, Sandy and Mandy didn't even offer them to him or their phone numbers. Hef spent a month tracking them down to ask them to move into the mansion. After some coaxing, Mandy moved to the mansion and Sandy followed her after her semester at college was over. 
Hef found that three girlfriends was fun, but with his new Viagra prescription, he had so much energy to spare that he set his sights on adding to what he often referred to as his Girl Scout troop. Soon, Hef had seven platinum blonde girlfriends living at the mansion. Two nights a week, they'd go out to clubs and the press went wild overseeing the octogenarian and his so-called harem. It appeared that Hef was back, baby. Seven girlfriends became his signature, so as women moved out, new ones would be rotated in. He'd meet these new girls at clubs or at mansion parties, which were now coveted invites again. The Sunday afternoon pool days at the mansion, dubbed Fun in the Sun, were a prime time to scout for new scouts, like when Hef met girlfriend Tiffany. I mean, is that a real thrilling thing when Hef picks you up? I was shocked. Yeah, it's kind of more like a shocking thing, because you don't think that with all the girls around, he picks you out of... Because when he, when Hef picks you, it's a sign of like that you're the most beautiful at the ball. Yeah, it feels that way. Is it? Yeah. No, he just jumped on top of me. I was in my swimsuit. I was laying out at the pool, and uh, of course, I'd been formally introduced to him, but that was brief. And then all of a sudden, I looked up, and my son was being blocked, and there was Hef, and he was crawling on top of me. <laughs> and he just jumped on top of me, and I felt just a, just go straight. So he kissing me, just stuck it in my mouth, and it was it, it was just so cute and just so shocking, you know. And he just said that he lost a game, and I felt you know I had to comfort him. <laughs> so so we kissed, we made out right there at the pool, and uh, hit it off after that. And so after that, he just said, "Is it a turn on to have him?" Ah, uh, is it a turn on to have him want you? Yeah. Oh sure. Yeah. Oh, again, a lot to unpack. But instead, we'll move on to the year 2000, when Hef met another young woman who was a fixture at these Sunday pool parties. The 21-year-old Hooters waitress had no idea what the future had in store for her. Hey, baby. Hey, I'm Holly. I'm originally from Alaska, and I live now at the Playboy Mansion. I'm Hef's number one girlfriend. In part two of this series, we'll talk about Holly, her move into the mansion, ascension to number one girlfriend, and the introduction of Bridget and Kendra. Lay Do You Remember This is researched, written, narrated, and edited by me, Dara Lane. If you weren't already, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave a rating and review. You can follow updates on the pod on Instagram and Twitter, stream our early 2000s Spotify and Apple Music playlists, and download some Laydew-inspired coloring book pages. You'll find those links on the show's Instagram. And please, if you like the podcast, share it. Tell your friends. It's true what they say. It takes a village to make me famous. If you have any questions, comments, or show suggestions, please email this at gmail.com. So... You're invited to come back next week. We've got a table, and I've put you on the list for Lay Do You Remember This. Mm-hmm.